Hello, and welcome to another edition of Pathfinders from RBC Capital Markets, where we'll be exploring what's on the horizon for companies and investors in the biopharma sector. This edition features highlights of a fireside chat held during RBC's recent global ESG conference. Good morning, everyone. I'm Brian Abrams, co-head of biotechnology equity research at RBC Capital Markets. I'm really pleased to be speaking with Gilead this morning, a company that has set forward-looking goals on sustainability and is consistently ranked highly with ESG investors. As you may know, Gilead has had a long-standing commitment to underprivileged communities and diversity and has been a key part of the world's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, contributing to key public health initiatives. From Gilead, we have their full team of ESG leads involved in shaping their ESG strategy here with us today. Brett Pletcher, Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and General Counsel, Korab Zuka, Vice President of Public Affairs, and Joydeep Ganjuli, their SVP of Corporate Operations. Thanks so much for joining us. Starting with the big picture, and I'll open all these questions to anyone who'd like to take them, how would you describe Gilead's ESG strategy overall and how it's evolved over the past few years? What are your key priority focus areas? This is Brett Pletcher speaking. Thank you for having us this morning. We appreciate the opportunity to uh, be speaking with you. Uh, in, in terms of the evolution of our program, you know, about five years ago in 2015, uh, we were seeing that we our scores out there for you know ESG or what was then known as CSR or sustainability, um, they weren't very good. So uh, we decided we would put out a, a CSR report. Uh, at that time, it was really just collecting whatever information we could in terms of what was being done kind of piecemeal environmentally, what we were doing socially. Uh, and then over the last few years, we've been making that more and more robust every year uh, and um, figuring out, you know, which framework should we be disclosing to? Which disclosures could we actually find and credibly be able to put out? Uh, and what goals could we set and how would, might we be able to achieve those goals? And so we've been very deliberate about each year getting better and better at collecting the information, getting better and better at disclosing to different frameworks that are out there. Uh, and over time, that has assisted us to you know, improve our our ESG standing. Uh, we've also, now that we've gotten a little bit more mature at being able to figure out how to find the information, how to you know, repeatedly pull it together, uh, to ask ourselves, now that we have a more enterprise view of what we're doing environmentally, what we're doing socially, um, what should we be doing now? What should we be setting goals? Should we be more aggressive in our goals? And so this, back in 2020, we, uh, we did a materiality assessment to figure out, you know, what is most material to us? Uh, and, you know, the, the E in ESG tends to get a very much a lot of focus, uh, but we thought, what else should we be focused on? And so when we did it, we came up with five areas of materiality, and in, in order, what we came up with in terms of importance was our, our most uh, material uh, element of ESG was, you know, access, pricing, and affordability of our medicines, followed by you know, R&D to produce drugs that meet unmet needs, uh, focusing on inclusion and diversity was number three, uh, four was attracting the talent necessary to bring the innovation and, and product to market. Uh, and, and finally, we had climate change. Uh, and so we've been uh, we've set some goals on the climate side and we're um, working on what kind of goals can we set in those other five areas uh, so that we can approach this uh, from a more holistic perspective than we have in the past and to you know continue to advance the program. Have certain stakeholders propelled you on your ESG journey um, more so than others? You know, I'd say in terms of stakeholders that engage with us most frequently on, on these kinds of goals and ESG issues, whether they call it ESG or not, uh, are primarily employees. Uh, a lot of employees these days want to come to a company that uh, is doing the right thing in a number of different areas, both from the environmental perspective. There's a lot of focus on climate change. We're a company based in 
California, which always has water challenges. You know, what are we doing with water? Uh, we're a company that has laboratories. What are we doing to make sure that, that the waste produced by scientific research is um, reduced to the most extent possible? And so our employees are very, very focused on what are we doing in those areas. Also, one of the biggest pieces of pride from our employees is you know, we've got about 17 million people out there in the world who are taking a Gilead drug every day in the developing world um, for HIV. And people are very, very proud of that. Uh, and so employees is the one big one. Uh, the other one is the is the um, the investor community. I do a lot of uh, engagement with our investors, and nearly every one of them these days has an ESG analyst or two that come to those meetings, and they want to focus on what are we doing, and they want to know what our goals are, why aren't our goals more uh, aggressive, what other goals might we set, uh, and they want to know you know across the board from from E-related questions and also social-related questions, uh, and we've we've welcomed it, and it's it's also helped us improve our program over the years. I know LabWork can use a surprising amount of plastics and disposable materials. What are some of the steps that you can take to ensure a sustainable R and D engine? Hey, Brian, this is Joy. Uh, I'll take that. So, uh, great question. Um, on the uh, general approach towards sustainability, Gilead's got very very deep commitment. We do everything we can to promote a a reduction in our use of consumable resources. And I think I'll answer this question on two levels. The first one is that we have tremendous management support. So it's okay having a goal, but having the uh, C-suite to actually take this as seriously as you would from a cultural perspective is important. So sustainability goals show up in Andy Dickinson's goals, who's my manager. It shows up as part of Brett's uh, remit in terms of managing the CSR committee. Uh, our goals are very analytical, as you might expect. Our target uh, from a pure numbers perspective was to reduce our operational greenhouse gas emissions by 25% compared to our uh, 2016 baseline. Uh, the reason that is of significance is that was the time point zero before we began our facilities growth and our, and our footprint. So uh, we're well on our way to achieving that. In 2019, um, our numbers looked to be 44% of our way through that target. Uh, despite having a 14% operational growth, which I think uh, are results that we're all very collectively proud of, uh, last year in October, we signed up for the SBTI, or the Science-Based Targets Initiative, and we'll be bolstering our, our current GHG commitment. So we measure it, track it very religiously, and we've got a very analytical approach. The, the lab question is a great one because, uh, as you're familiar with Gilead, we have a disproportionate amount of technical infrastructure, labs, and manufacturing. And it's always trickier because those are very energy-intensive and consumable-intensive operations. And we approach this th in three different ways. One is through thoughtful master planning and design, right? We have we just took all our labs uh, recently out of some of the older uh, obsolete labs and moved them into a world-class, state-of-the-art research center. And everything, right from the design to the construction to the operations, are based on very, very green principles. Uh, all our labs that are constructed in the last three years achieved green building certification, lead gold or lead or, or higher. Uh, there's a second element where I believe Gilead's sort of differentiating itself also is in the use of technology and automation and trying to drive this notion of intelligent laboratories where these the levels of automation can actually significantly impact consistency in the way you use water, for example, during cleaning regimes, et cetera. So using technology and automation to drive some degree of consistency in energy usage is a huge part of our focus um, to try and take lab operations and make them less energy intensive. Uh, the final and probably the most salient point, I think, is is to try a, drive a grassroots culture on sustainability, and that's where we partnered with lots of local organizations, local nonprofits like My Green Labs, etc., to clearly bring sustainability into every uh, sort of local operation within the labs. And our scientists have a 
inbuilt culture of sustainability. They've got a lab recycling program. So there's a big focus on the consumables end to ensure we recycle what we can. And then as we look towards future projects, we use our thoughtful master plan to construct the least energy intensive operation. That, that's great. And uh, I know you, you mentioned climate change is an important pillar of, of your goals. With the new Biden administration in the U.S., there's, I know, been a lot of discussion on the United States' commitment to place climate change near the top of the policy agenda as well. And we've seen policy pushes from other countries like Canada and the U.K. Are there, are there any sort of regulatory changes that you'd be anticipating in the coming year? And how might these impact your overall practices and approach? Broadly speaking, do you think you know, business leaders are shifting how they approach environmental and, and, and climate issues as a, real, as a result of some of these policy trends? Yeah, we are observing the policies. Uh, we do believe with the new administration that climate change will be central to, to corporate discussions and the trajectory is less carbon and less waste and more focus on sustainability. Uh, we're keeping our eye on some local regulations, specifically things like the California Climate Accountability Act. Uh, we expect it to have very minimal impact to us, uh, Brian, because we believe that any regulations that do get imposed are, are well in line with the way we are committing to it. But what I will say in general, you will see a broader industry conversation grounded in some common principles, and it will lead to certain harmonization of, of the way we report, as Brett alluded to, the way we focus on. And that's only good because... You can't do this alone. As a company, we are very reliant on third-party suppliers. You're re reliant on third-party providers to also support your efforts. So having a common vernacular, having common standards, having a common ethos towards sustainability is as important as having industry leaders that make a, make a statement about this. So we're, we're energized by it. That's great. Um, and, you know, I know... As, as you mentioned, the employees uh, at Gilead are particularly proud of, of how many patients you guys serve. And, you know, Gilead obviously focuses on treatments for diseases that can be life changing for, for so many people. Uh, so there is an implicit societal benefit uh, to, to what it is you do on a drug development and commercialization basis. So um, maybe sort of referencing one of the first goals that you, that you mentioned, just given the high profile nature of drug pricing, how do you guys think about ensuring access and affordability to patients and the developed world and how might the strategies to maintain fair pricing further evolve as you guys move into new spaces like oncology? Are there, are there learnings from some of the attention received several years ago uh, on drug pricing uh, in, in the hepatitis C cure space? Sure. You know, drug pricing is something that we could probably spend the entire conference uh, talking about. Uh, and you know, access has a lot of different pieces to it from the, the pricing set by the the drug company to the you know the copay requirements set by the insurance companies, uh, but when we think about things that we can do uh, with respect to you know how can patients get access uh, to our medications, uh, particularly in the developed world, there are a number of things that we do. Um, one is we never want a patient to be unable to access their medications because of cost, and so for any patient who is uninsured or has certain levels of income, we have a free drug program. Uh, where that patient can can give us a call and we can provide that drug um, free of charge. We also have um, copay assistance programs where if patients can't afford the copay set by their insurance company, um, we can assist them to some extent. Um, there are some programs that we're not allowed to provide any assistance, so um, there are uh, charitable foundations out there to which we'll give money, and those foundations, you know, patients will come to them with different. Um, diseases and say, I can't afford my medication. Can you help me with my copay? That can help them uh, get their medications as well. 
Uh, and then we do a lot of work um, because the cost of drug isn't always the biggest barrier to access. A lot of times the biggest barrier to access is someone's access to healthcare in the first place. Can they, do they have a doctor? Are they willing to go see the doctor? They, have a, they may have a disease like HIV or HCV, or you know, they might be uh, concerned about uh, acquiring uh, HIV and need something to help prevent the, them getting the disease. And there's a tremendous amount of stigma, and so they won't go see the doctor. So what can we do to make sure that people actually will go see the doctor in the first place uh, and have, have, have the opportunity to even um, try to get the drug in the first place? So those are a number of facets that we're working on to ensure people have access. Would you be able to provide some detail, uh, more detail on Gilead's hiring and diversity practices? And uh, I guess... I'm curious how you ensure adequate representation of women and minorities, both in research roles as well as in management. And just, I guess, given the bottleneck at the PhD level uh, of minorities and, and women and minorities in, in STEM more broadly, what strategies does Gilead use to identify and hire uh, the broadest range of candidates? So, Ryan, on that one, it was such a great question. And in 2018, we actually included inclusion and diversity as a core value for Gilead, because we really wanted to create a culture of inclusion and diversity in a way that when we were when we attract diverse talents with diverse backgrounds, they actually have a sense of belonging in the company. So for us, it was really important that the environment was already in place. In terms of the specific tactics, we really created inclusion and diversity action plans for the company, which we includes the establishing the goal of doubling black representation by 2025, which is really coupled with investing um, and expanding internal and external talent pipelines. We also in 2021, which is this year, we essentially expanded the number of interns that we are accepting at Gilead to 100 R&D interns. We've also invested significantly in partnerships with several historically black colleges and universities and Hispanic serving institutions, really in an effort to further expand access to diverse talent. And then in 2020, we also launched the Advancing Black Leadership Strategy and Blueprint for Change. These are programs that are within Gilead, but they're dedicated to allowing specific budgets aimed at uh, increasing black and Hispanic hiring development and retention. And we believe that these strategies are really going to enable us to meet our target, which we disclosed last year. Great. And uh, you know, maybe uh, before we, we wrap up, maybe just a, a couple of more questions I, I wanted to touch upon. You know, on a on a practical note, um, you know, one of the prevalent challenges as it relates to ESG and the transition to a lower carbon future is, you know, balancing current performance and, and business results today with, you know, investing for the future when the outcomes and the costs may not be as fully defined. So as Gilead thinks about the projects and strategies to pursue how do you guys balance sustainable choices and societal capital versus nearer-term growth and investor return? Our board is acutely aware that you know of the contribution that ESG efforts make to Gilead's overall success, and we actually, uh, and it's a point I can't make strongly enough that we actually uh, see this as a certain degree of causality that companies that do invest in ESG are actually companies that do well. And and from our perspective, we do see a very strong link between just a ESG ethos and our, and our results. So everything we do, we do it with a sense that we believe that you know ESG is as much a, a, a ethos and a core value for us um, in everything in des every decision we make, and we try and build that into the way we make day-to-day -day choices. 
Uh, and I think, uh, and I'll leave it at that right now. And I think what, what you know, it's, it's a combination of being thoughtful, being very strategic, investing heavily in planning, uh, and then viewing this truly as an investment uh, in the way we work. What do you think biopharma companies can do to further improve the ESG landscape? Are, are there any uh, joint initiatives, for instance, led by industry groups that may be worth pursuing or, or highlighting? Or what, what should we be looking for, um, I guess, from coming from a, 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 a perspective of a leader like Gilead? What should we be looking for for the biopharmaceutical space in, in general in the coming years on this front? Now, we do work with a number of the pharma companies as part of the business continuity roundtable and, and other groups to to have discussions about this very question. And as I look at it, I think one of the biggest contributions that we can make as an industry in the short term uh, is to help people understand what are the materiality drivers for our industry uh, and to help kind of get the frameworks of reporting out there and, 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 and the rating agencies and others to look at us in a consistent way so that we can provide apples and you know apples to apples uh, information to all of you who are looking to understand uh, what we're doing and, and how, why things make uh, a difference in different areas and why they don't in different areas. Uh, and, and so I really think standardization of, of how we approach ESG and how we look at ESG so that we can look across the industry and understand what we're doing in a consistent way uh, would really be something that the industry could could uh, contribute here. Great. Well, with that, I know we're uh, we're, we're out of time. So, uh, Brett, Karab, Jody, thank you guys so much. Uh, really uh, insightful. Uh, appreciate you guys taking the time, um, and uh, congrats on all the progress that uh, that you've made. And uh, and good luck going forward. If you're wondering what else is on the horizon for the biopharma industry, we'll be keeping track right here on Pathfinders. Thank you all for joining us, and stay tuned for future episodes. And of course, if there are any areas that we discussed that you'd like to learn more about. Don't hesitate to contact us directly for more in-depth discussion or visit our website for further insight. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives. For disclosures, please visit www.rbccm.com. Dot com slash disclosure.